Hello and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. And here with me is my co-host, Lee. Hello. Hello. And in this episode, we are going to be talking about the passion of the cut sleeve. So what is that? That is the male homosexual tradition in China, though we are also going to be talking about uh, the female homosexual. The female, the female homosexual. The female homosexual. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Not not as much as the male homosexual tradition in China, but this whole episode, we're going to be focusing on the male homosexual tradition and behaviors and literary uh, milieu around it uh, in early China, which is is pretty interesting and really cool. We wanted to kind of get it out of the Western world, uh, so we're diving right in. Yeah, we, we want everyone to know that, like, we really care about this being, like, as global and inclusive as possible, just because, you know, we've existed all over the world for forever. Um, well, we are probably going to focus a lot on... Western tradition, which is, you know, something that actually may come up when we talk about China is that like one thing that we, I think in America are really missing is like a connection to our roots mm-hmm. as like queer individuals. Like we're missing kind of the, that sense of like, who are we? How do we situate ourselves in society? How do we understand ourselves? And how do we understand ourselves like vis-a-vis like historical examples of people who are like us? Um, so yeah, like while many like people and like phases in history that are western are going to come up because that's something we kind of want to reclaim and resituate like we definitely also want to be like hey but we're you know queers aren't just western yeah we're everywhere yep we're everywhere literally everywhere (laughs) hate that idea but hey get over it you mean we're (laughs) you mean we're not one character in a tv show who has zero queer friends no and we're not an invention of like the 20th century (laughs) gays didn't exist before 1969 i don't know what you're talking about but yeah uh before we go into our our main topic for the episode uh we just want to put in uh an announcement of some content warnings so due to the strong overlap between anatomy and gender in this discussion we're gonna be shorthanding some things uh we're gonna use quote male to refer to both someone with a penis and the social gender role of man and female to refer to someone with a vagina and social gender role of woman, unless otherwise noted. It does come up. There are some fascinating stories of gender presentation and social customs that we might expand in a later episode, but for now we want listeners to be aware we're not trying to dilute gender spectrum. We just need to sort of shorthand things for this specific context. Right, and there is another thing to be aware of. There, We definitely will mention pederasty. We're not going to be explicit or go into a lot of detail because it actually wasn't quite as common um, mm-hmm. in this context as you might as you know, perhaps in a place like Greece or Rome, but it is going to be mentioned. So we want people to be aware that like, this is something that will come up. The discussion won't be very explicit and it won't be very long, but I mean, it is something we have to touch on. Mm -hmm. We'll try to put uh, anywhere that would be appropriate. We'll try to put time codes in our show notes. So without further ado, let's get into 
homosexuality in ancient China. Male homosexuality, uh, especially in early or ancient China, was pretty openly expected as an integral part of imperial court politics. There are many stories that we're going to get into of emperors and social elites who bestow gifts upon male favorites um, and spend tender and loving time with them. As centuries went on and literacy and the prevalence of more accessible prose expanded, stories of the homosexual tradition began to shift from stories of beloved court favorites and male-male companionship towards popular erotic fiction in things like plays or other fiction stories and poems. Things only really began to change with the Western colonial influence. Christian missionaries to China in the 17th century actually decried uh, flagrant homosexuality and quote, pederasty that they saw everywhere. And Spanish colonialists in the Philippines around that time actually bemoaned that Chinese traders were bringing homosexuality and popularizing it among the native Filipino population. So, you know, just just catching the gay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's infectious. It's infectious. (laughs) I mean, I find it infectious. I don't know about you, but I see pretty ladies and I am consistently reaffirmed in the fact that I'm a big old homo. But so while this is likely an exaggeration due to Christian moral outrage, woo! Uh, And the fact that in Chinese cultures, like, kissing between men and women was reserved for the privacy of your own home, whereas other forms of PDA, like holding hands and going out together, were acceptable, like that between a noble and his favorite, or even between a man and a male or female prostitute. No historian will deny that China had a very different view of same-sex interactions than much of the Western European and American tradition. Yeah, like, in fact, a lot of the modern homophobia that we see in the People's Republic of China today is actually a reaction to, and weirdly like a conformity to Western ideals, rather than actually being an ancient tradition, even though if you listen to um, many of the leaders or the, the official Chinese, you know, government statements about homosexuality, they'll say like, oh, like China's always been, you know, anti-gay, but that's lies. We, we, we got it from the missionaries who were coming and they were, they were engaging in pederasty with all of our people. And right. It's just, it got weirdly twisted. It was, it's really interesting to learn about. Yeah. This idea of like the West is so decadent. Look how decadent the West is. They have homosexuality and that's where gay comes from, which is just an ignorance of their own tradition. And a lot of actually, from what we read, a lot of modern the modern experience of being gay or lesbian in China really does involve like a lack and awareness of their own tradition precisely because like the current government has done so much to try and like repress mm-hmm. the knowledge of the own like historical tradition, which is really sad and tragic because I mean, as we'll talk about this tradition of homosexuality, I mean, it dates back, I mean, it's millennia, mm-hmm. like literally millennia. We're not exaggerating. Like this is, you know, a couple thousand years of tradition of acknowledging that these relationships exist and are, you know, fairly well accepted by right, widespread society. Yeah, it's 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 sad how there's been a kind of turn of of events. Um, but we're gonna go into the the happy long tradition and hopefully, yeah. you know, hopefully some things can change and people can become more aware of their line in this long timeline of of love. It's also important to note that there's still disagreement about how frequent or common same-sex relationships were among men and women, and to what degree we can map those onto modern experiences of homosexuality. Not all scholars agree about the prevalence of male versus female homosexuality either. Some will say it was more common among men 
and we have little to no evidence of Safism. Others will say the opposite, uh, that Safism was quite common and encouraged, but we have no basis for believing gay behavior between men was widespread. It's, you know, it's kind of all over the place. Yep, yep. We tend to think that both were fairly common. Yeah. yeah just so we'll just let you based know on that ahead of time. Based on experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gretchen, do you want to talk a little bit about sources? Where we yeah. get all this stuff? Yeah. Uh, so for much of Chinese history, most of the writings concerned with court life were concerned with court life. And only what was highly unusual would have been recorded. So we can't entirely know how common it is. So one of the sources that we're using is a book called Passions of the Cut Sleeve by Brett Hinch. It's very, it's quite exhaustive, um, especially on the male homosexual tradition, which is primarily his focus. And he says, quote, because Chinese society always held both literary pursuits and examples from the past in exceptionally high regard, it became possible to discern a homosexual tradition developing through time with successive authors taking reference from previous works and making them relevant. Homosexuality came to be described through reference to famous individuals of ancient times associated with same-sex love, unquote. So that's where he gets this idea of male homosexual tradition, that it's like a literary tradition of talking about current experience in terms of past examples and stories that they have from older sources. And we can glean from the lack of judgment placed on sex itself uh, in these sources that most were more concerned with the political or social repercussions of like favoritism than the emperor or then who the emperor or his courtiers were fucking. So fuck who you want. Just don't make them their don't make them your general if they're not qualified or if they're going to impair your judgment in being able to rule over your kingdom. Right. Like any negativity associated with these stories was more along the lines of like, dude, um, that guy's not qualified to the position that you elevated him to. Like, you know, enjoy your sex with him if you want, but like that could that could ruin the kingdom if you're promoting people who don't deserve it. I think there was a I think there was a really good quote that was like like a like a pretty like a pretty boy can do much to ruin a ruler's head or something. Uh-huh. Uh, which I think really gets at at the at the meat of it. Who was, you know, who was in these relationships was not important. There was no denouncement of homosexuality based on oh that's immoral and bad it was hey you're thinking a little bit too much with your dick to (laughs) make good political decisions right right well and that goes to to what was said earlier about only what was unusual would have been recorded so like the stories we have would be situations where like hey a ruler you know, promoted this general too high and then people invaded, so maybe don't do that. But kind of everyday life and normal situations where, you know, if nothing crazy happened, they wouldn't have written it down. Mm -hmm. Like, so, you know, an emperor could have had, you know, 10 male lovers, but they only wrote about one because it was that one that something, you know, unique or interesting happened that they wanted to write down. Um, So, it's just stuff to keep in mind that they're only writing about like the things that stand out. So that only tells us about the things that stand out. And I mean, there could have been hundreds or thousands of more stories where, you know, everything was fine and normal, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't written down. And most of our records are of the emperor or the elite. We don't have much knowledge of lower classes. Uh, We do get a little bit more uh, into that when you start looking uh, into prose fiction and humor sources in later dynasties. You see it more expanded into the peasantry. But 
a lot of it was very, very insular. Right. And just about everything we have is written by men. So there's not as much about female sexuality. And in fact, I mean, Hinch will say that the, the term homosexual tradition really only applies to men because unlike Western society, where we see male and female homosexuality as being, you know, related, like two sides of the same coin, in China, they were considered completely separate forms of sexuality. So a man writing about his own experience with other men would not have drawn any kind of conclusion about what that meant for women having relationships with other women. And also they were mostly writing about themselves. So we just don't really have a lot of information about women. And again, because they're elite, like the, most of the women that we have stories about are like women from the court harem or, or concubines of, you know, elite mm -hmm. rather than just like your average you know middle class or lower class woman that is until later dynasties another interesting component is that chinese language uh, especially in this period doesn't classify gender the same way we do so many of the poems are inconclusive for gender uh, plus at certain times male poets would even take on the conceit of writing from the perspective of a woman so it's not certain to what degree it expresses their own desire or one assumed from a from a female point of view right just linguistically they don't mark gender in pronouns so you can have a poem written by a man about like a beautiful person and you don't know if that beautiful person is a man or a woman. Or, you know, sometimes even playing with the ambiguity of, of both. We just can't tell. And that's just a linguistic thing to be aware of. So, as Oprah put it, what is the truth? Uh, what can we be certain of about the male and female homosexual traditions in China? So, that's what we're going to talk about. And uh, to start that off, it's important to understand the social context of the philosophies that would have been shaping the cultural understandings throughout much of uh, Chinese history. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Confucianism and Taoism and how those influence the concepts of sex and then how that can shape how we understand, you know, why homosexuality might have been more common um, in that tradition than it is here in the West. So Confucianism developed from what is termed the Hundred Schools of Thought from the teachings of Confucius sometime in the 6th century BCE uh, based on the ideas inherited from the Shang Dynasty and the Zhou Dynasty. Also, before I go any further, we are going to have a timeline of the dynasties in our show notes. <laughs> like... I 100% needed one as I was reading because I would forget which one was which and what time periods those encompass. If you get confused... You can look at our show notes. They're going to be there. So, uh, Confucianism. It was the dominant philosophy in the Han Dynasty and had a revival in the Tang Dynasty that evolved into the Neo-Confucianism in the Song Dynasty. Again, you can look at the outline for notes on what those time periods are. For Confucianism, the emphasis is on family and social harmony. It is generally considered to be a humanistic philosophy where the ordinary acts of human life are a manifestation of the sacred as well as an expression of one's moral nature. There's a lot of emphasis placed on social structure, hierarchy, and rightly ordered relationships, both within the family and within society. Now, the family is the core of social stability, and strict gender roles were necessary for familial stability. Um, there's a general trend in Confucianism of women being um, silent, hardworking, and compliant, following the lead of the males in their lives, their father, then their husband, then their sons after the death of their husband. And especially in later dynasties, chastity was valued, especially for women, of course, though there is an acknowledgement of their value as the yin principle to the male's yang principle, which brings us to Taoism. We're 
Confucianism was primarily concerned with social positions and social roles of men and women. Taoism was primarily governed sexual life, specifically. Uh, its roots are in the 4th century BCE, but it coalesced into a coherent tradition during the Han Dynasty, which is the 3rd century BCE to the 3rd century CE. And Taoism was less rigid in terms of social order and ritual than Confucianism was, and was more concerned with living in accordance with the underlying natural order of the universe, which is called the Way, which in um, Mandarin is Tao which is where we get the term Taoism. And at its root, it posits that one cannot grasp human life fully as a concept intellectually, but must be learned through experience. It emphasizes spontaneity, naturalness, simplicity, and what is called Wu Wei, which is a state of being that is effortless and entirely natural. It is most commonly expressed by um, the yin-yang symbol, where the white represents the yang principle and black represents yin. And... Uh, where this gets, I know this probably sounds super boring and unrelated, but where this gets interesting to me is that um, it does actually affect how they viewed the act of, you know, sexual intercourse. And according to Taoist belief, the entire universe was created by the harmony of the active and receptive qi principles. The active principle is yang and most commonly associated with masculinity. And the receptive principle is yin and most commonly associated with femininity. Gee... I wonder why. <laughs> this is this is a strain of thought that we see echoes of or, you know, various reflections of in other cultures that viewed, you know, male are active, women are passive. Um, I mean, I guess it makes sense from a biological perspective, but it is very, very frustrating. Um, so sex between men and women was seen as a harmony of these two principles, and procreation was a sacred duty as um, the act of sexual intercourse in order to have a baby mirrors the creation of the world by this harmony of the yin and the yang. So, in nitty-gritty terms, the yang essence of males, so their semen, is considered limited and capable of being expended to the point that men can become ill or even die if they use up too much of their yang. Exposure to female yin, her, you know, vaginal secretions or, like, womb secretions, sometimes it's referred to as her blood. Um, really, it just means any, like, fluid produced by um, female bodies, um, women with people with vaginas. So exposure to female yin was considered limitless. Oh, yin was limitless. Like the people with vaginas have an endless supply of yin. And exposure to that yin can invigorate or revitalize the limited male yang. So because ejaculation reduces yang vitality and you want to save up the best yang for the creation of children, um... That, coupled with their idea that yin, the female yin, was at its most effective for revitalizing males when a woman orgasms, means that the female orgasm was highly prized and necessary for sex, uh, successful sexual interaction. But many males practice coitus interruptus to preserve their yang for the right time to make babies. So they're kind of like storing up all of their yang <laughs> by not ejaculating. But all of the, the women they're having sex with are orgasming. And they're like, you know, I think of it as like a power up. You got to get your like <laughs> yang power up from the lady orgasms. <laughs> oh, my God. It's sex power rangers. Yeah. Got to get your power boost. So like sex with multiple women would have been highly encouraged if you could afford it because um, and it would have been like a joyful, fun, energetic experience because you want to get as much out of it as possible. Um, you want to get all that yin so that they could store up and revitalize the male yang. 
However, like sex procreation would have been primarily only between a husband and wife and would have been a more solemn affair in keeping with its creative purpose as mirroring the creation of the universe. So what does all this have to do with homosexuality? You are probably asking yourself. Well, according to some scholars, they argue that because yin is limitless, things like female masturbation and sapphism would have been tolerated if not even encouraged. Because the exchange of chi energy, of chi like yin energy between women, was either neutral, meaning that they wouldn't have lost any energy, or it would have been beneficial, meaning that it could make their, a woman's yin stronger, which then would have been had you know the, the ability to like revitalize males even better. There are actually some sources that argue that um, female prostitutes have stronger yin because they're more experienced. So you have that, it's like a similar idea that like if you allow women to um, either masturbate or have sex with other women, then you're just like building up their, the strength of their yin. So, um, and also like sapphism could, could even lead to acts of devotion and love that would have been highly praised. So like there was value just in it as a way for like women to show devotion and love and um, most likely would have been in harems or elite homes with multiple wives or maybe even between wives and other members of the man's household. For male homosexuality, according to the sources that I've read, the idea was that your yang vitality isn't entirely lost when you have sexual contact between two males, um, and likely would have been supplemented by sexual contact with women, either later in life or at around the same time, um, because exclusive male homosexuality was not very common. So a man having sex with another man wasn't considered a, you know, net loss of yang vitality, and might even be praised if such interactions would have led participants to, you know, great works of art or philosophy, but it could have been criticized if done for material or political gain, or if it led to criminal behavior. And to me, a lot of this might explain why there are so few exclusive male homosexual relationships, um, as that would have been perceived as losing your vital force, um, because it's not supplemented by yin by like the female yin. And it may also explain why egalitarian homosexuality was more tolerated for younger males who still had, you know, were in the prime of their life and had in a sense like a larger store of yang who would have then been expected to settle down with a wife and have children and been, you know, supplemented by their female yin. So I thought all of that was super fascinating and I think helps like set the context for why, you know, male and female homosexuality might have been more highly tolerated. But sex wasn't just about yin-yang, especially when it came to males who had sexual relationships with each other. So now we're going to talk about different kinds of sexual relationships between men. Yay! Um, one, one thread that you'll see kind of throughout this that there really was no word that corresponded to homosexuality like we have in the Western tradition. As Brett Hinch says, classical Chinese lacked a medical or scientific scientific term comparable to homosexuality or homosexual. Instead, it was usually discussed using poetic metaphors referring to earlier men or incidents famed for association with homosexuality. Chinese terminology therefore did not emphasize innate sexual essence or an identity, but concentrated rather on actions, tendencies, and preferences. In other words, instead of saying what someone is, Chinese authors would usually say whom he resembles or what he does or enjoys. So the idea of all of these things is not intrinsically tied to identity or your like internal essence of who you are attracted to, like we would think 
in like modern Western queer society. And it's it's also, uh, we have paradigms for different relationships between males. They still fall under these dominant and submissive and active passive paradigms used for sex between a man and a woman, kind of like uh, you see in Greco-Roman societies. So dominant and submissive was based on the social standing of each partner. And it was determined by three different factors, gender, age, and status. So for gender, women were in general considered inferior, big surprise, uh, which affected the social status of males who were associated with the female gender, like male prostitutes. Age, younger generally yielded to the older. We have to note here that there is, like we said before, evidence of pederasty, as with Greco-Roman society. Not all of it is an older male and a young boy, but that is present in the source material, and we'd be lying if we left that out, though it was more common for an older male and an older teen or early 20s boy. However, later dynasties, especially in the Tang and Song dynasties, they actually had rules about rape of children or youth, and it applied equally to boys and girls, which is interesting to note as there was no distinction made for punishment based on the gender of the child, only their age and the amount of violence involved. So even in these cases, there's a much less judgmental attitude toward same-gender sex versus, quote, opposite-gender sex. Yeah. Right. The idea was more just like, don't have sex with kids at all. Yeah. Which, I mean. Yeah. We can all agree on that. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> we can all just fucking know. And then the last the last factor is status. Education, employment, family, wealth, other factors that contributed to status. Um, and typically a lower status would yield to a higher status. And then that brings us into a linked concept, which is the active and the passive. So yeah active and passive is based on a sense of hierarchy but this time it's for penetration so the active member is the penetrator and the passive is the one being penetrated and you can see how this applies to both you know male and female relationships as well as male homosexual relationships and typically partners aligned along distinct and consistent roles not there's not much evidence of mutual penetration or sexual affection flexible, flexible sexual roles, if I can say flexible and sexual, um, in order without messing up my mouth. But this could be, I know, right? Uh, That could just be a bias of the sources, meaning that it was common. And so it didn't merit notice, or at least wasn't unique enough to be mentioned. Because if it didn't play into the social or political aspects of the sources, they were, you know, it was left out, as we said earlier, like things that were noted were things that were unusual. So it could just be so common that you know no one talked about it or it could be that it just the sources that we have weren't necessarily concerned with the idea of mutual penetration unless it played into the larger story that they were telling but i mean from what we know typically partners would take consistent roles throughout their relationship if someone was the active then they would stay the active partner for as long as the relationship lasted for example. And all of that to say that socially dominant males were frequently the sexually active male, and the institutionalization of prostitution, particularly male prostitution, solidified sexual roles along those lines, and many of the passive participants, i.e. the prostitutes, took on more and more feminizing clothing, makeup, appearance, um, as a kind of way of, like, visibly instantiating, like, their role as the passive participant more along the lines of, you know, a female within that particular relationship. Yeah, you would even see that extended into art. So erotic art in the Ming and Qing dynasties even reinforced this difference in these social and sexual roles by going so far as depict depicting the active and passive parties with different skin colors. Um, and you'll see that on our website. We've got a whole bunch of fun 
not quite safe for work uh, images. So if you're going to check out our blog post after listening to this episode, you might not want to do it at work. Right. Just a heads up. Yeah, there's a lot. A lot it's of a lot of porn. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> We're just going to become a porn podcast. Right? Woohoo! One other interesting thing to note is that um, a man's sexual role could actually change throughout his lifetime. Typically, you might see them being more the passive participant as a youth with an older and active male partner. And then once they were older, they would take on the active role with a younger male or other women in their life. Thus, like, exclusive male-male relationships for a single man would have been highly unusual based on the above views of sex and social roles. Bisexuality like that in Greece and Rome would have been more common, but um, when we use that term in this context, we're not trying to, again, like we're not trying to say anything about attraction. This is more to say about obligation versus social expectation involved in any of their acts or relationships. So by bisexuality, we just mean someone who, who actively has sex with both men and women rather than us trying to say like well they were attracted to both men and women they're just someone who participates in sex with men and women mm -hmm. yeah hinch notes that marriage was seen as the bonding of two lineage groups not the romantic union of two individuals so a lot of times marriage was kind of divorced from any sort of romantic element and with romance banished from marriage, a husband was free to look elsewhere for romantic love and satisfying sex. So often men would be free to pursue any and all sexual interests they wanted, but there was still a social obligation to eventually marry, and within that you can still continue extramarital sexuality uh, in order to align with the established Confucian ideals of social order. So it, you know, like we were saying before, what this does is it prevents the emergence of a self-identified homosexual lifestyle that's independent of eventually setting, settling down and marrying, um, as, you know, we have here. In addition to the religious and social importance of procreation and continuing family lines, I thought it was interesting because heterosexual sex had a large economic significance, especially for the poor. I mean, if you're a poor peasant working, you know, tending agricultural fields, like, without a bunch of children to help you with that, it would make for a very, very hard life. So again, Hinch says, the indispensability of children to rulers and peasants alike helps account for the prevalence of bisexuality over exclusive homosexuality. Right, exactly. So we just wanted to point those things out because they're interesting. Yeah. So let, let's get into some stories. Yeah, y'all want to hear about some, some homo lovin', some super yeah. great homo lovin'? So we're going to mostly focus on male homosexuality and then we'll have a little addendum near the end to talk about female sexuality. Um, but like we said, this is the majority of our sources. Um, so we claim to have a record of homosexuality going back to the Shang dynasty. So 16th to 11th centuries BCE or even further to the fabled, quote, yellow emperor, uh, which was a way of adding legitimacy. This has happened before. Everything's fine. It's great. Um, and so likely it really was something that they knew had occurred since then but we start seeing um actual like written down records and and stories and fables in the Zhou dynasty uh which is 1122 to 256 bce um and these stories are primarily focused on court favorites and their arist aristocratic lovers establishing the very strong pattern of class structured homosexuality um so any man who could obtain the sexual favor of his lord could rise significantly in power and privilege these Relationships are usually framed by very strong emotional bonds and deep attachments based on filial loyalty. Uh, um, 
we get we get a we get a, a poem from the the classic of odes, which is China's earliest surviving poetic anthology, expressing the intimate camaraderie between two warriors. I like this one. It says, "How can you say that you have no clothes? I will share mine with you." The king raises his army. We put in order our dagger axes and mao lances. I will have the same enemies as you. How can you say that you have no clothes? I will share my trousers with you. The king raises his army. We put in order our mao lances and ji lances. Together with you, I will start on the expedition. How can you say that you have no clothes? I will share my skirts with you. The king raises his army. We put in order our mail coats and sharp weapons. Together with you, I will march. I feel like that's like the like the male version of like the the whole Naomi and Ruth scene where she's like, where you go, I will go, and where yeah. you die, I will die. Oh, it's so great. Which is also gay. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. One of the most famous stories from the Zhou Dynasty is. The story of the bitten peach of Mizi Xia and Duke Ling of Wei. So this is recorded in the philosophic writings of Han Fei Zi from 233 BCE. And bitten peach or um, shared peach, the love of the shared peach. Yeah, like this is one of those like really common metaphors for male homosexual love. And uh, Mizi Xia is one of the prime examples that is used in later history. People will talk about like, you know, being like. Mizi Sha, being as beautiful as Mizi Sha. Yeah, it became like a catchword for for referring to male homosexual love. So Mizi Sha was the court, was a favorite of the Duke Ling of Wei. And when Mizi's mother was ill, he used the imperial carriage, which was big, no, no. Um, you got your feet cut off if you did that. And the emperor, instead of punishing him, actually praised Mizi for his filial love for his mother, because even in the face of extreme punishment, he was still willing to steal the carriage so that he could go visit his mom. On another day, uh, Mizi bit into a peach that was so delicious that he wanted to share it with Duke Ling. And Ling declared, how sincere is your love for me? You forgot your own appetite and think only of giving me good things. However, this story does not have a happy ending. When Mizi's looks had faded, the emperor turned on him and accused him of stealing his carriage and giving him a half-eaten peach as a sign of his lack of love. And this is frequently used as a tale to warn about the dangers of favoritism, because favoritism can be a threat to the ruler if he overlooks things deserving of punishment, which, you know, threatens imperial the imperial stability. And it's also a danger to the favorite if he loses imperial favor by, you know, growing old, becoming less beautiful or less interesting. So interesting to note here is that the homosexuality, again, that's not being condemned. It's just like, hey, just so you know, being a court favorite is a precarious position. Yeah, it emphasizes the kind of the fickle nature of some of these these social elite and also yeah how precarious it was for if you were the recipient of these favors right this could change at any moment yeah yeah you could yeah. uh the next one is my favorite i love this one so it's the story of zhuang xin and shang cheng and zhuang was a junior official and he had a big old crush on his lord shang so cute and asked if he could hold his hand and shang this was really forward. Typically, the junior official would not approach someone higher up to uh, initiate a relationship. It was typically initiated from the position of the, the social superior. So it says that Shang's expression changed, but he didn't answer. So Zhuang told him the story of Lord Yi. Has my lord ever heard of Lord Yi? 
He rode an aquamarine boat carved with avian images and drew upon azure coverlets. Men of Yue rode to the sounds of bells and drums singing, What a fine evening is this, that I have come to this islet midstream. What a fine day this is, that I share a boat with you, my prince, unworthy that I'd be so desired. When have I ever felt such shame? My heart's perplexed to no end, that I have come to know you, my prince. There are trees in the mountain and branches on trees. I yearn to please you, and you do not know. Lord E, hearing this story of one of his courtiers being in love with him, then reciprocated that courtier's love and raised him up. So, hearing this story, Shang took Zhuang's hand and promoted him, which I think is great, because he's like this super awkward courtier who's like, I want to hold your hand, but I don't know how to tell you I like you. So he's like, there's a story of this other guy who had a, who had a courtier who liked him, and when he heard about it, he was totally okay with it. Can you hold my hand? Can you hold my hand? I know that it's irresponsible and, and, and I'm not supposed to ask you, but please. Right? I think it's great. Yeah, I love it. I like I like Long Yang and the Emperor of Wei. This one's one of my favorites because he's he's so nervous. Um, so Long Yang is another one of the prime examples used in later history that comes from the Zhou dynasty. Um, so these two uh, were on a fishing trip. And after catching several different fish, Long Yang suddenly bursts into tears, and he's hysterical. Um, and the emperor asked him what his what is wrong, and he's you know he's like, I caught a fish, I caught a fish. And the emperor's like, Why why are you crying? That's a great thing. And Long Yang <laughs> replies, When I've caught the fish, at first I was extremely pleased, but afterward I caught a larger fish, so I wanted to throw back the first fish I had caught. Because of this evil act, I will be expelled from your bed. There are innumerable beauties in the world upon hearing of my receiving your favor surely they will lift up the hems of their robes robes that they can hasten to you i am also a previously caught fish i will also be thrown back how can i keep from crying so he's he's nervous that the emperor will find someone more beautiful than him and will throw him back he's like how do i know that you like me the best there are prettier boys <laughs> um, and so the king reassures him and makes a proclamation forbidding anyone else from en mentioning anyone more beautiful than Long Yang. He's basically saying, like, if anybody says that my beloved is not the most prettiest boy in the land, you will all die. Um, so, yeah, it, again, speaks to the precarious position of favorites, as well as the possibility of extreme devotion from their emperor. I just love, like, how hysterical Long Yang is about this. He's like, I am also a previously caught fish. You're gonna find someone you like more than me. Oh God. Uh, I mean, so it's great. relatable. Like that's what? like, is that not all of our anxieties in being a being in a relationship? You're gonna find somebody you like better, right? Totally. You're gonna throw me back in the river. I love it. It's so relatable. So relatable. Uh, the final story that oh, is this? It's beautiful. Oh, it's yeah. the story of Wang Zhongshan and Pang Zheng. When Pang Zheng was young, he had a beautiful appearance and bearing, and so people of that time were exceedingly fond of him. Wang Zhongshan of the state of Chu heard of his reputation and came to request his writings. Thereafter, Wang Zhongshan wanted to study together with him. They fell in love at first sight and were as affectionate as husband and wife sharing the same coverlet and pillow with unbounded intimacy for one another. Afterward, they died together, and everyone mourned them. When they were buried together at Lofu Mountain, on the peak, a tree with long branches and curly twigs suddenly grew. All of these embraced one another. At the time, people considered this a miracle. It was called the Shared Pillow Tree, which is just 
so beautiful and sad. And at the time, like, the, the intertwined tree has been a symbol of, like, tragic and deep love between men and women. So it's really important and interesting that this tree that grows up with the intertwining branches marks their grave. It's the symbol of, like, eternal, everlasting love embodied in this tree. So... It's the earliest analogy made between homosexual love and actually heterosexual marriage because it says that they were as intimate as husband and wife or as mm-hmm. affectionate as husband and wife. So it's just a beautiful story of two dudes who love each other and oh, they so die together and the world is like, you guys love each other so much. Here, have a tree. Have a tree. Um, yeah. At, and at the end of each of these, uh, these kind of dynastic sections we want to talk about like the language that was being used at the time so a lot of times in Zhou dynasty uh, stories you'll see the ambiguous term chong referring to love patronage favor or respect and it was applied equally to heterosexual relationships and platonic friendships in general so there was a continued importance on describing homosexual acts in terms of social relationships rather than that erotic essence um, and like Gretchen mentioned before, you'll also see the term mei uh, as beautiful, which is used in the, t- in the tale of Pan Zhang. And to the ancients, mei was applicable to both men and women, describing beauty and goodness. It's similar to the Greek's concept of unisex beauty, kalos. I think it's really interesting because you see a shift later in dynastic history. Mei actually gradually lost its general applicability and became primarily associated with effeminate and sexually passive men and boys, especially uh, in regards to like prostitution and its connection with the theater. So with that, we're going to move to the Han Dynasty, which is from 206 BCE to 220 CE. And interesting to note, 10 of the 13 kings of Han took male lovers as well as wives and concubines. So uh, that's like two centuries of bisexuality. Woo! Woo! We have emperors Gao, Hui, Wen, Jing, Wu, Zhao, Xuan, Yuan, Cheng, and Ai. Uh, it is recorded in the official histories of the time called Memoirs of the Historian by Sima Qian and Records of the Han by Ban Gu. That's where you can find all of these stories. And there were actually like separate sections where they would talk about court favorites. They would have like the court histories and then they might have like a separate section on like favorites of the emperors. So according to Sima Qian, it is not women alone who can use their looks to attract the eyes of a ruler. Courtiers and eunuchs can play at that game as well. Many were the men of ancient times who gained favor this way. Now, the works um, of Sima Qian and Ban Gu also show an expansion of the vocabulary used to describe homosexuality. It's the introduction of the term Ningjing, meaning those who obtain love and favor through flattery. Yeah, and so here's where we get our big one. Our big, big story that is probably the most uh, most famous and, and most reference uh, examples, uh, example used in later history, perhaps even more than Mitzi Xia and Long Yang, uh, which we have uh, the story of Emperor Ai, who was the last emperor of the Han Dynasty, and Dong Xiang. So first off, I love that this story basically starts off with the quote, by nature, Emperor Ai did not care for women. Um, this is just flat out. Um, so he was sleeping beside his favorite slash lover, Dong Xiang, and when he was called away to a meeting, he didn't want to disturb his sleeping lover, so he cut off his sleeve. Like, he just cuts it right off. Um, and the, the tale says, his love and thoughtfulness went this far. When he appeared in public wearing the cut sleeve, his courtiers praised his love and thoughtfulness, and many actually cut their own sleeves to celebrate it. 
you want to talk a little bit about Dong Dong Xiang? Yeah, it's just interesting to note that like Dong Xiang, as many of the men in these stories are, was married, and actually his wife and children were honored as well as he was by the emperor. His sister was actually made uh, an imperial consort as well. That's actually fairly common in many of these stories where it wasn't just like the male favorite, but like the whole family would be honored and potentially even family members would also join the court harem. This is just to say like you can have these stories of like strong male devotion to each other alongside, you know, the males being married and having children. Emperor Ai was actually so devoted to Dong Shang that on his deathbed, he attempted to hand over his empire to him <laughs> instead of to his son which uh, upset the social order and Dong Shang was forced to commit suicide by Ai's political enemies and a usurper took the throne, which is why this is, he's the last emperor of the Han. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sad, but also like he went so far as to flagrant, fragrantly, flagrantly throw aside expected social mores and said, no, I want my male lover to continue my, my legacy. Um, and everybody else was like, um, you can't do that. You have to give that to your son. I I thought, like, I, I love this story in and of itself, but mostly just for how prevalent it became in describing this tradition. And, you know, from for centuries and centuries later, male-male love was, was referred to as, like, the passions of the cut sleeve. And I, I just really want to emphasize how much I love this. This is a really, really great quote from the Hinch book, which is, Men of dynastic history did not feel alone in having affectionate feelings for other men. The complete integration of homosexuality into early Chinese court life, as recorded, was alluded to repeatedly in later literature and gave men of subsequent ages a means for situating their own desires within an ancient tradition. By seeing their feelings as passions of the, quote, cut sleeve, they gained a consciousness of the place of male love in the history of their society. And I wrote, I wrote in my book, like, if only we had that luxury, this, this exact thing is like what I think about with the need and want to do a podcast like this. That's exactly what we're getting at. How different would Western queer society be and feel like if we had this long tradition in all of our literature to go back on and say, hey, here's how I can contextualize these feelings. And that just makes me even sadder that this is something that like modern Chinese queer people don't really have access to. Right. They've lost this tradition as well because of the government yeah. has, has blocked access to that. And and I know, you know, if, if there are any people listening to this in, you know, currently in the People's Republic of China, like we would love to hear from you. And, you know, if you want to talk to us about any of this, like we would love to learn more from the perspective of somebody, you know, who is who is living there and you know, I mean, I, I assume most of the people listening to this podcast are probably of the queer persuasion. So, yeah, you know, I think that's a safe bet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so with that, we're going to we're going to move on from the Han Dynasty. There are more stories. If you want to read more of them, you should check out the Brett Hinch book. There are more than we could have time to go into. Right. But we're going to move on. Stuffed full. Stuffed full. Uh, but we're going to move on to the Three Kingdoms and Six Dynasties period, which was all sorts of stuff going on and very unstable in terms of um, ru- rulers and moving things around all the time. Official records of the Liu Song dynasty say from the Shanning and Taiking reign periods, which is 275 to 290 CE, of the Western Jin dynasty onwards, 
male favoritism flourished considerably and was as extensive as attraction to women. All the gentlemen and officials esteemed it. All men in the realm followed this fashion to the extent that husbands and wives were estranged. Resentful, unmarried women became jealous. And there's a parallel um, idea expressed in a poem of Liu Xiaozhou, who lived from 481 to 539, which describes a woman's anxiety over being ignored by a man in favor of another man. Quote, she dawdles, not daring to move closer, afraid he might compare her with leftover peach. So note the, note the reference to Mizisha and the bit peach. I also like that in the context of a woman having anxiety over this, it's not called the shared peach, it's called the leftover peach. <laughs> I don't know, just an interesting translation there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's possible that, as these authors' observations suggest, that bachelors in this time who preferred men may have even delayed taking a wife for as long as possible. You also get, uh, in this period, the rise of many military men as favorites for, for the emperors uh, due to the violent chaos of this age. And we get a new um, kind of metaphor for male-male love or relationships uh, in this period that's not nearly as prevalent, but I still thought it was really interesting. Um, there's a lot of talk of... Um, uh, this metaphor of linked jade discs or um, just jade in general. Um, uh, a, a, a man of jade was considered a paragon of physical beauty. Um, and in general, there's a, a comparison to beautiful men and things in nature. This was, I, I wrote some fun notes on this. Uh, that Oh, yeah. Men, men in this period valued good looks. Uh, and some actually attempted to improve them by artificial means. So we got the rise of male cosmetics and jade powder. And according to the aesthetic of the day, a man could improve his appearance by applying this white powder. <laughs> Brett Hinch has a quote in here that I love that is, quote, oiled hair, powdered face, and small gleaming buttocks described the, Id the ideal man. Yeah. Small gleaming buttocks. Right? Yep. Who doesn't love some small gleaming buttocks? Um, I, the part about the powder is really interesting too, because it was in this time period, it was like highly esteemed, but later it again kind of shifts and is associated with male prostitutes and actors and sexual passivity. So we see these larger trends in a lot of different ways kind of coming up. One of my favorite stories from this time period is the Seven Sages of the Bamboo Grove which is a story about seven famous scholars who all, at one point or another, have sexual relationships with each other. So two of these sages, Shi Kang and Ruanji, were visiting a third named Shan Tao, and his wife spied on them making love. When Shan Tao asked his wife what she thinks, her reply is that he clearly only compares to them at an intellectual level because they have greater sexual prowess together than he has ever had with her. Oh, is there some ointment for that burn? It's oh, so God. <laughs> oh, man, that story's fabulous. She's basically just like, oh, they only like you for your brain. Yeah. Kinky. I think yeah. I actually, I think I literally wrote in my notes in the margins of my book to that story, just kinky. When, like, she's just, like, <laughs> peeping on him. There are a lot of stories of peeping. Yeah, a it's lot of erotic very, art, too. Yeah, it's a very common motif. Also, like, when you move into, like, humorous sources, there's a lot of scatological humor, which, I mean, just, like, from a Western perspective, I don't necessarily get. Although there is a lot, like, in, like, Elizabethan uh, history and, and Renaissance history and Shakespeare, there's a lot of scatological humor. So it's more, it's more, uh, it's more of a common thread. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So nine emperors 
of this time period had open male lovers, one of whom was named Emperor Jianwen of Liang, who lived from 503 to 551 CE. And the court poet Xu Ling records the following poem, which was written by Emperor Jianwen. Charming boy, you look so handsome. You surpass Dong Shan and Mizisha. Our feather curtains are filled with morning fragrance. Our curtained bed is inlaid with ivory. Your face is more beautiful than rosy red dawn clouds. Deep in your heart, you probably suspect you're not my latest catch. But your intimate love for me is still like that of the former carriage, which is a reference to Mizisha. You're enough to make the girls of Yan envious and cause even Jang women to sigh. So you can see a lot of those, like, coming up, you have, like, the latest catch, you have explicit references to Dong Sheng and Mi Zi Sha. So you can see how kind of, like, they're building on this tradition and, like, using these stories as a way to, like, situate their own experience. And you wouldn't have needed, like, external references, too. Everybody would have just known what they were talking about with the names Mizishia and, like, these references. I think it's, it's so great to just have that intrinsic knowledge. Yeah. Another note on language, um, Records of the Way gives examples of the use of a new term to describe homosexual attraction to men, uh, which was nanfeng, uh, literally meaning male wind or, you know, more loosely kind of transcribed male custom or male practice. I thought it was interesting that this is actually the first time a term started to describe uh, the homosexual tradition based on the homosexual act itself rather than in the context of social roles. And it actually still remains in use today as a literary expression for male homosexuality. Right. We also get to see in this time period a bit of a shift toward um, seeing elements of the homosexual t- tradition like male prostitution in a less glamorous light, highlighting some of the contradictory elements. Uh, you have, you know, poems about how difficult it was to be a prostitute and kind of how vulnerable they were. So in this time period, these illusions reinforce both the beautiful and the pathetic aspects of male love rather than just strictly focusing on the beauty of it. And that leads us into the Tang Dynasty from 618 to 907 CE. So Hinch says, official histories have few references to homosexuality compared with earlier histories, so it was a little bit less prevalent. He suggests that perhaps male favorites found themselves more removed from positions of power, or maybe male love was starting to fall out of favor among the Tang elite relative to the earlier rulers. But we still get, you know, there's there's still sources and examples of them. Um, there's the poetic essay on the supreme joy by Pai Sing Xian. Uh, so it's a poetical text on the art of promoting health and longevity via sexual activity, so the yin-yang of sex. And male homosexuality gets its own section of the work, although sadly the text is very badly corrupted. Yeah, it's it's like crumbling in places. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting that in this entire work, which you know many would think of as being primarily about heterosexual sex, there's actually its own section on male homosexuality. So even if we may not have as many court records, this is still something people are writing about and experiencing. There is also uh, Emperor Ji Song, who favored the inner garden boy Zhang Langgu and could not sleep peacefully without him. So you have, you know, discussion of like male entertainers from imperial gardens still being important. Um, And it may be that there was a shift from political favoritism to more entertainment side of things rather you know yeah entertainment and prostitution right 
Yeah. Which uh, leads us to the Song Dynasty from 960 to 1279 CE. Now, the Song Dynasty, we see the rise of Neo-Confucianism, which leads to a belief that sexual excess outside of marriage um, had been what led to the breakdown of the empire prior to and after the Tang. And as a consequence, favoritism fell out of favor as it was believed that any sex outside of having sex with their spouse would have cosmic repercussions. So they weren't just decrying, like, male favoritism but also like female favoritism within the court isn't this when the yangtze river flooded was this yes yeah but even in that even in that story and even when it's getting decried right it's still quite light in nature it you know it compares like hey having sex with you know people outside of your spouse is you know what what could be causing things to cosmologically get out of balance but it's also the same as like gambling and doing all these other things so it was placed in this larger context of everything else it wasn't like homosexuality is the worst sin ever and the world is going to die it's more just like hey stop thinking with your dick and maybe (laughs) like stop gambling and stop having like you know, excessives in all these other areas as well. Like, Mm -hmm. it it was situated along the lines of, like, oh, hey, maybe we should not be so, like, pleasure-oriented. Maybe let's, like, let's have, like, a stronger moral, like, focus Mm -hmm. on, like, moral action and, like, right order. So, yeah, even the sex itself, you know, whether homosexual or heterosexual outside of marriage was situated within this larger movement towards, like, let's get back to the basics of, like, rightly ordered society. Um, There was also in this time period a rising aristocracy and um, middle class and rejecting favoritism as a structure was a means for for this rising aristocracy to exert more control because they believe that favorites are being given undue favors in court so it wasn't so much again wasn't so much sexual or moral as it was political so you could say things like oh yeah you shouldn't have favorites because I want to have more power in the court and political favoritism and patronage uh, patronage interestingly enough evolved into like the system of prostitution and there were even at this time period legal codes that banned male prostitution though they were rarely enforced um and again we have to situate that in terms of like the larger like social context and it like there was a degree of you know moral morality to it but not you know sex is a sin it was just, you know, hey, maybe don't go to prostitutes because, you know, that might have repercussions for the kingdom. It could even have, you know, a class, a classist bent mm-hmm. to it because prostitutes would have been considered lower in the social structure. So um, having legal codes banning prostitution, I mean, can be used as a way to keep lower classes seeking social mobility from attaining that social mobility. So there's that level to it as well. Um, Because prostitution was a means by which you could gain social mobility because then you have more money. So if you ban prostitution, you're essentially like banning social mobility in a certain regard. So it's always just important to like situate these, you know, situations in terms of the larger context. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, in in this period too, in the Tang Dynasty and the Song Dynasties, we also see a, a large trend of poetry proclaiming deep affection for friends. So the emergence of a literati class in the Song Dynasty especially meant more accessible writings and like poems on your established friendships would be the mark of a, of a sensitive gentleman. Um, and a poet from this time period, Bo Zhuyi, recounts many stories of romantic friendship and ex- he exchanged poetry sharing intimate feelings with his friends. There are lots of them. Uh, but one of the most prominent ones is his, his greatest affection with his classmate Yuan Chen. 
Um, they made an agreement referred to as the Green Mountain Pact to retire together and live as a pair of Taoist recluses. Oh, that's like our monks from last yeah, time. Yeah, it's so cute. Oh, yay. Aww. Yeah, there's actually a lot of um, overlap, too, with like monastic communities in, in uh, like, like Buddhist monastic communities here, too, which is really interesting. Um, it's, it's a long story. It's a long poem for this. Um, so we'll put the whole text on the website because it's real cute about the, the Green Mountain Pack, but I just love it. Um, there's also, um, at this point in time, overt sex was banished in poetry. It was deemed unsuitably vulgar for refined literary discourse, which is really interesting because, as you'll note as we get into the next dynasties, they sort of went away with all of that and yeah. everything just became real erotic in the art and the fiction and everything. But so at this point, right, again, we're left wondering as to the specific nature of these friendships. But as we learned last episode, with all of our love letters to their special friends, uh, still gay though, still gay. Just a note on language in the Tang and Song dynasties, we also actually have the first introduction of a derogatory term for homosexual acts, Jijan, which is translated as sodomy. This term is related to chicken lewdness. Yeah, and the it's, character is very weird. <laughs> it's yeah, it's a very interesting, you know, linguistic phenomena. But the character depicts a, a man being like a woman, implying sexual passivity, and starts a trend on any sort of derogatory thought towards homosexuality being directed at the sexually passive partner rather than the active men. All that to say, when there is what looks, you know, more like what we would consider homophobia. It's typically directed toward the male who is taking the sexually passive role. Mm -hmm. It's like you are you are a man. Why are you not? Why are you not acting in this expected social role of being dominant, being you know, be being an active partner? Right, right. But that's not to say that like there's no evidence of of homosexuality even in according to hinch like even in this atmosphere of decreased tolerance homosexuality still continued to be practiced pretty openly enough to you know catch the attention of writers and it's even you know debatable how much the the laws against male prostitution were actually even enforced so just because they existed doesn't mean that they were you know consistently enforced throughout um throughout china at this time period which uh brings us to ming the ming dynasty the ming dynasty is a treasure trove of of lots of things um mostly porn mostly yeah mostly porn and erotic fiction <laughs> and this is from 1368 to 1644 and here is actually we finally are starting to get literary sources beyond court documents as prose fiction starts to become more popular so not only does this give us insight beyond the emperor and elite social classes into the lives of middle class and even lower classes we also get more stories of female homosexuality included in prose fiction and plays we also start to see funny stories like our favorite <laughs> which is the story of a man and wife who who don't who get very confused on their wedding night. And I'm going Can, to read it. You're going to read it? Oh my I gosh. am. Story time! <laughs> Story time! So, on the wedding night, a man nestled up to his wife with his buttocks, and his wife grabbed them and accused him, saying, How come you don't have one? Whereupon the man also grabbed his wife's pudendum and accused her, saying, And how come you don't have one? I love this. It's so great. They're it's so like, great. It's like, I don't know what sex? to do. How do, yeah. how do we do the sex? We don't know. There's, I mean, there's even, there's even a, an illustration of this. Brett Hinch, the, uh, he believes that it comes from the Qing dynasty. Uh, and we'll put it up on the website, but there's literally a, an illustration of this, this joke where you have 
a woman standing behind this man and she's wearing a dildo and he's looking back at her like what and she's looking at him like what it's <laughs> um, amazing yeah there's there's another one too there's another story another funny story that you know is along kind of the same the same realm of like not quite knowing exactly what to do once you know once these men entered into heterosexual marriage situations a man got into bed on his wedding night and immediately seized his wife's buttocks and wished to do it that way you're wrong said his wife i've been doing it that way since i was small why am i wrong well the way i've been doing it since i was small isn't that way replied the wife so like I love this. Hinch says, The strong woman figure drolly contrasts her own sexual worldliness with her husband's heterosexual ignorance. And if that's not... If that's not indicative of just the concept of a beard, I don't know what is. Right. That's pretty great. Yeah. (laughs) Oh. Well, it's important to note that this is one of the first times where there's not a separate section um, for male favorites. Though there are mentions of favorites from uh, many of the emperors in the official records. They're just not listed as their own, like, separate. These are the favorites of the emperors. The Ming Dynasty also sees a continued flourishing of male prostitution, and prose begins to focus more erotically, um, also more humorously, as we've just been, just been reading. There are changes in terms used to label male sex love that indicate that their cultural emphasis actually was shifting from social relations to the erotic act itself. So the terminology is shifting at this time period, which which is an interesting thing to note, which, you know, fits within kind of the overall sense that, that the Ming dynasty was, was much more open in terms of eroticism in general. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a time of intense awareness of the long tradition of male love. And as the reading public grew, they would have had access to almost 2,000 years of written accounts, which, like, how freaking cool is that? I like 2,000 years of written accounts. Right? I mean, well, that's basically what we're getting into in this podcast. But right? we have to, we have to like, scrounge and search for it instead of, like, let me just go back on everything that we have. Right. Oh, hey, look, I can read now. And I also you know, have these relationships with men. Oh, look! Oh, look, there are stories for me to read that help me understand myself. Jesus, that night. And they could point just, they could proudly point back to the antiquity of the Zhou and Han dynasties as a righteous model for their own sexual practices, which, again, wouldn't that be super cool? Gee, how nice. How nice would that be? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have, uh, we have a play called the Peony Pavilion uh, by Tang uh, Xianzu, that we can, from, from this play, we can discern that despite distaste for male homosexuality uh, present in the Buddhist traditions of the time, the Chinese tended to view it as no different from extramarital heterosexual relationships. The play includes a court scene from hell where the punishment for homosexuality is no different from someone who goes to female prostitutes or another who enjoys singing or a fourth who uses fragrant wood in the construction of his house. All of these things, um, the uh, Buddhist sensibility was like, mm, it was concerned with people's attachments to like sensuality. Um, so hence the, you know, sex things being kind of on the same level of like, you are enjoying nice smells. You're supposed to not be connected to anything actually earthly. So this was a comedic scene. So the point is that these are not serious offenses. Right, right. Like, I like to sing. It's the same. The guy who likes singing is punished the same as the guy who has homosexual relationships. And the and whole point in- was that it's absurd. 
And even in that story, two of the men who are being punished are currently, like, having sex with each other, too. Yeah. So it's kind of like, well, Yeah. What's interesting is that Fujian province, as part of the Ming Dynasty, was actually famous for male marriages in the Ming and Qing dynasties. The older man, the Qishang, or adoptive older brother. Interesting. Interesting. Brotherhood. Guys. Guys, it's almost like terminology. Can be cross-cultural. So the older man would pay a bride price, like literally a bride price, for the younger man, who is called the Chidi, the adopted younger brother. And the two men would go through a full formal wedding ritual with the feast, and, you know, it was basically the exact same ritual as a marriage between a man and a woman. Um, the younger male would then move into the Qishang's household in exactly the same way that a Chinese bride enters her husband's family's home. They could um, adopt young boys to raise and they typically lasted about 20 years before they were dissolved so that the younger man could marry and raise a family of his own typically with a woman but it is interesting that like they actually have something that was equivalent to marriage or is equivalent they they had marriage between men it was just they would then dissolve it so that the younger man could marry a woman and have kids i just think that's so cool that as far back as the ming dynasty they had marriage they even had a patron deity of homosexual love, which is Tu Er Shen. Um, so this is also in the Fujian province in the 17th century. Um, so the name means leveret spirit or rabbit god, as rabbit was a slang term for male homosexuals in late imperial China. And a man named Hu Qianbao fell in love with a very handsome imperial inspector in Fujian. And when caught peeping on the inspector, he confessed his love, but the inspector sentenced him to death anyway. A month later, he appeared to a man in his hometown in a dream, declaring that, and he was, um, he appeared in the form of a rabbit, declaring that as the, quote, crime of peeping was one of love, the underworld gods had declared him the god of homosexual love. The man created a shrine to him, and the following was so large that during the repressive period of the following Qing dynasty, the cult actually ended up getting targeted for extermination. So this was widespread enough that there was like a cult of a cult of homosexual men uh, praising this this patron deity. Right? Yeah, you had so they had so many pilgrims and followers that mm-hmm. the Qing emperors were like, maybe we should get rid of that. Speaking of the Qing dynasty, so this is from 1644 to 1912, and overall, this is a period um, of perceived as like a reaction to what they would have called Ming libertinism. So it's more socially conservative. Um, Homosexuality is brought under increased regulation. There are more rules, especially regarding rape, especially of children. This is actually where we get those laws about the assault of male and female children. And again, there's no distinction made between the gender, but um, about the age of the victim and the amount of violence involved. However, popular literature still shows that homosexuality was spanning all social strata and was still considered widespread, um, especially if you talk to outsiders visiting China. It's only actually toward the end of the Qing dynasty when we start to see contact with Western societies that the views of homosexuality begin to change and the perception of homosexuality becomes more negative with this contact with with Western societies. The one thing to note that is really interesting at the time is you have a writer by the name of Chen Sen who created this taxonomy of homosexual love, which shows that he did not prejudge based on whether someone's affection was for men or women, but rather how they manifested their desire. So passions of the cut sleeve were no different from heterosexual love in that they could be extreme, shrewd, tasteful, pure, 
virtuous, impetuous, straightforward, drunken, voluptuous, or seductive. So what mattered was how one loved, not whom one loved. The form of love written about in this period took on more of a didactic function to teach virtuous life by positive and negative examples, whether they were homosexual or heterosexual. So you could have a homosexual story being used to talk about virtue or have a heterosexual story being used to talk about an undesirable kind of relationship. So the one thing that, even though there is increased pressure, and by the end of the Qing Dynasty is when we really get the instantiation of homophobia, in the, the, which then transitions into the current you know, system of government. But there is still fairly widespread, and you still have people in this time period who are looking at homosexual love as no different than heterosexual love. Um, what matters is, you know, what how you're behaving, not with whom. This dynasty also kind of, finally, we see a little bit of introduction of female homosexuality, uh, and it was portrayed as common and often inevitable. It could also give rise to beautiful acts of love, self-sacrifice, and devotion. It was celebrated, but excess should be avoided, as with male homosexuality. Which brings us to our, our fun segment, our Word of the Week. Word of the Week! Woo! And it is the term, she which means shared eating. <laughs> yes. So actually this term goes back as far as the Han Dynasty, where Yang Shao says, when the palace women attach themselves as husband and wife, it is called Dui Shi. They are intensely jealous of each other. Records of the Han also mentions the love of two slave women as Dui Shi. So Dui Shi, shared eating, that sounds familiar. People yeah. have been, uh, we've been eating out for millennia. Yeah. Yeah, literally always been. I just love. I just love that that's a euphemism in other languages. Like I think it's great. I also like the like intensely jealous of each other. Like <laughs> what? Yeah, I don't really know. I how don't that get applies. that, but that's it's pretty great. Um, but they're eating each other out. So yay. Yeah. Um, there's also group marriages. So as far back as the Tang, there are records of groups of women joining together in a community wedding ceremony. Usually it's a lot of women and uh, women who were, um, concubines in, in harems. Um, in the Qing, there's a record of one such group, the mirror polishing gang, uh, who reject men and only take female lovers. Um, can we, and, like, can we the, get t-shirts that say mirror polishing mirror gang? Mirror polishing gang. Oh my God, please. <laughs> yes. Well, cause, cause like mirror polishing was also another euphemism. Right. I mean, you see, as as we talked about um, in the last episode, there's a lot of like military metaphors, um, especially in like Arabian literature. Um, but there's also this refrain of mirror polishing uh, in a lot of different places, which if you want to read about some of that stuff, again, I'm going to recommend Sophistries by Layla J. Rupp. Uh, there was also the rise of the Golden Orchid Society in the uh, there you go, Guangzhou, uh, area of economically independent women because of the silk trade that kept women safe from machinations of society. So within it, women could undergo a traditional marriage ceremony and adopt daughters who could inherit. Yeah! So, I mean, it's basically like the equivalent of male marriage in the Fujian province. You could mm -hmm. have women getting married who could, you know, raise daughters together and their daughters could inherit all of their stuff from them. And I just think it's great. Mm -hmm. So most of the stories that we have of female homosexuality come from the Ming Dynasty simply because the literary works are, you know, we have more access to different kinds of literary works, like fictional and didactic poetry. However, like the degree of praise and acceptance with which it's spoken about should speak to it not being an uncommon practice or wrong. The fact that as late as the Ming Dynasty, they're talking about women loving each other and without any kind of negative, you know, stigma attached to it doesn't 
mean that women weren't doing it earlier. I would actually say that to me, that implies that this has been fairly common because these are stories being used to teach people about love or teach people how to be moral or virtuous. And the fact that they're using women who are in relationships with each other, to me, is like speaks to it being fairly common, um, even if we don't have records from earlier. So yeah, there are a lot of stories we recommend. Again, if you want to read more of them, there's Brett Hinch's book. There's also a book called Sex in China, and it actually has a much more extensive list of stories that you can read about female homosexuality. My favorite story is called Loving the Fragrant Companion, which is by Li Yu, who's a very like famous writer of the Ming Dynasty. He's got lots and lots of erotic stories, um, both of the male and homosexual, female homosexual variety. So this one is about um, the wife of a man named Shi, so we'll call her Mrs. Shi for now. So she visits a temple where she meets and falls in love with a young woman named Yun Hua. They fall in love with each other, and Mrs. Shi promises to do what she can to make Yun her husband's concubine, so that they can always be together forever. After many trials, Mrs. Shi succeeds, and Mr. Shi is delighted with his new concubine, and the two women are delighted with each other and get to be together for the rest of their lives. I love it. I love it. Um, there's also The Flower Shadow Behind the Curtain by Si Chao Shu Shi, uh, which is the explicit description of two 16-year-old girls peeping on their mothers having sex with an old man, and then they both become so aroused that they have sex with each other, then continue to do so every night. Uh, it's interesting for its explicitness, which is new in this kind of literature, and also for the exchange of roles, each one taking turns as the passive and active partners to each other, and I think it's I think that specifically is pretty interesting in that, like, it might have something to do with the fact that, like, yin was limitless, and so it's just, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're the active or passive partner because it's just kind of a net zero, um, which is interesting. Right, so there seems to be much more willingness to to have the, the roles there be flexible mm-hmm. rather than to have this idea of, like, a strict active and passive partner. Yeah. Um, there's also one more which reminds me of the one that Gretchen said, which is Six Chapters of a Floating Life, which is an autobiography by, by Shen Fu, which is uh, talking about how Shen's wife, Shen Yun, becomes infatuated with a singing girl and wants to get her as Fu's concubine, much like in the last story. Um, but this one's a little sadder. His family objects to the match due to the girl's low social social status so we still have that you know that enforcement of social strata um and the girl is forced to marry someone else and then shen yun falls into a deep melancholy and gets ill and dies she died of love right she loved the girl so much that she died yeah relatable right yeah hashtag hashtag relatable yeah to kind of wrap this all up we wanted to to draw it all together and talk about some like takeaways things that we can just kind of say about you know the history and the social context um something we want to do more along these episodes where we where they're focused on like a historical time period rather than a particular person so things like we can't really delineate clearly using modern terminology as sexual roles and partners could change throughout your life so there's no real clear way to to really call this you know gay or straight in our modern terms, especially because sex was based on practices and behavior rather than primarily on like an essence of attraction. Exclusive male homosexual relationships were rare as men and women could have, would have been expected to marry and have a family. Um, 
many relationships would fall under the umbrella of like poly as men having multiple partners would have been expected and it's quite possible that sapphism would have been encouraged among women in the same household or in the harem alongside their duties to their husband there was even one story that we didn't get a chance to get into where a man and uh, his beloved, his favorite, have a long relationship, and the wife is involved in it, with it as well. And um, and then when the man passes away, the wife and the favorite continue to have a relationship. So, like, if y'all want, you know, an ancient Chinese equivalent of Professor Marston and the Wonder in the Wonder Women, there you go. Right, right. More than anything, Chinese thinking prior to the 19th century has an openness to homosexual relationships is a valid expression of human desire. So long as one's filial and social obligations are also fulfilled. So there was no moral value placed upon negative moral value placed on homosexual relationships. Um, relationships were primarily judged based on how one acted within the relationship and what the effects those relationships could have on the politics of the realm or um, cosmic repercussions rather than specifically the gender of the partner. And that's something that is so beautiful and something really lacking in our society nowadays. This idea that like, it doesn't matter like who, but how. Mm. And I think that like, there's something we as a an Western American society can learn how to bring that more into our discussion of relationships, no matter what the genders. Like, it doesn't matter who. It matters, like, are you healthy? Are you happy? Is it consensual? I'm not saying we, like, adopt <laughs> um, the whole philosophy, but just that's something that, like, we can think about and really value about this tradition as we're thinking about reclaiming our own history. So that then brings us into our our ranking section. So Gretchen, how gay were they? I give this a ten out of ten. To me, this is this is this is pretty damn gay. I'm definitely on the this is clearly same gender attraction rather than just like power grabbing or mm -hmm. institutionalized abuse or or any of the other ways one could potentially frame this. Even if there were relationships where manipulation was involved, like there's clearly some degree of preference being exerted, even if the larger context is outside Western ways of thinking about exclusive attraction. I mean, male emperors didn't have to have sex with their subordinate, nor did the women in harems have to have sex with the other women. Like there's no social obligation for it. So to me, even though it may not be gay in, you know, the Western sense of exclusive attraction, it clearly has relevance for the queer experience because these are people who are still expressing, I think, some degree of preference, even if they are also at the same time fulfilling their social obligation. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna even go beyond and, you know, call this an 11 out of 10, right? Because it's, <laughs> it's nothing that we have, it's nothing that we have a comparable tradition for. And I'm jealous. I'm jealous of it. I'm jealous of the ability to look upon thousands and thousands of years of history and contextualize your own feelings, which is something that is kind of foreign to us. And that's why we feel so elated when we hear these stories. That's why there are those of you listening to this podcast. It's it's so prevalent, it's so important to us to have that cultural history at our fingertips. Um, and, and you know, like you were saying, Gretchen, right? Like, they didn't have to have sex with their subordinates. And also, as you saw in some of these examples, right? It was the subordinates who were going after the, you know, the older or higher status men. And, you know, one could say that that was for political gains, but clearly the language surrounding these describes such a deep affection 
And the fact that, you know, heterosexual marriage was available to everyone, um, but didn't preclude or exclude the the ability to have these extramarital homosexual relationships, I think says a lot. You know, they, uh, homosexual relationships were safe. There was no chance of accidental pregnancy uh, and having, you know, like an unwed mother running around. There was the ability for these men to have emotional bonds and, attra- and, and attachments that they weren't able to get in a relationship that was usually arranged and usually... Um, because they were arranged by the male head of the household for, you know, filial and and lineage reasons. Um, so yeah, it's uh it's a it's eleven out of ten for me. I'm down with that. Yeah. yeah. So that is it for today's episode. You can find us online individually. As I said at the beginning, I'm Gretchen, and when I am not talking about historical queers, I am drinking tea and writing geeky analysis of Star Wars books, LGBTYA novels, Song of Ice and Fire, and Wonder Woman for thefandamentals.com and my personal website, gnellis.com. Or you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter at, at gsgnellis.writer. And I'm Lee, and when I'm nerding, not nerding out about old-timey queer folks, uh, I'm usually can be found sticking my head in a comic book or these days more books about old-timey queer folks when i'm not talking about it i'm reading about them um uh, and usually gushing about some sort of queer tv i'm really excited for one day at a time to come back oh my, oh god. my god um and so y'all can find me over at at a paradox in flux on twitter um or sitting on my couch crying about fictional gay ladies it's my general status that's a mood that's a big damn mood <laughs> history is gay podcast can be found on tumblr at history is gay podcast twitter at history is gay pod you can always drop us a line with questions suggestions or just to say hi at history is gay podcast at gmail.com we've all we've gotten several lovely fan letters y'all are so great y'all are amazing we love you uh, this is dude, so much fun to this, do it's so, i keep them coming this warms our heart right um, seriously we've had a couple of phone conversations where we're like did you read the email oh my gosh it's yeah! so great so we love you guys <laughs> we're so happy that you guys are just as happy and enjoying yourselves as we are doing this mm-hmm um, and speaking of, if you're enjoying the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Rating and reviewing especially helps us get up in the rankings and helps more people find the show. And that way we can expand our awesome community and get more folks to talk about our sweet, sweet gay love throughout the times. Right. That's it for History is Gay. Until next time. Stay queer. And stay curious. Stay curious.